You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. I want you to think about this phrase. Life is more than logic. In fact, in many ways, so much of life is a mystery. It is unexplainable. Think about this. Why is it when people are breathing their last breath, what they want more than anything else are their closest friends and family beside them? Why is it that sometimes words are not needed, but rather one holding the other being together? It's not as if holding hands will prolong another's life, or the mere presence of someone will suddenly breathe life into them. So why is it so hard to explain that particular experience? Well, it's because life is more than logic. Or what about for those of you who uh, enjoy creation and stroll through a beautiful greenhouse or a planetarium or the Smokies? You know, plants have parts and names, but how do you explain beauty? How do you communicate the collage of colors and what that does to your soul? Life is more than logic. Or what about a wedding? Right, you can describe the food on the table, you can describe the wedding dress, the rich scenery, maybe even the joy on the faces of those getting married. But can you really explain in logical terms the love in their eyes? Can you explain the look on a mother's face or a bridesmaid's tears? No, life is more than logic. Or what about when you were in the theater and you see a musical performed on stage at peak levels. And there are names for blocking and staging and Acts 1 and Acts 2, but how do you explain the awe of the performance acted out in two hours? How do you communicate the story of redemption, of forgiveness, of freedom, perhaps, that was so profoundly displayed? By the way, this is me every time I sit down and try and explain Hamilton. And about 30 seconds into the conversation, I'm just like, ah, you got to see it. You got to see it because you can't explain it. I mean, how can you? It has facts, but the mere facts are not what makes it powerful. Life is more than logic. And so it is with prayer. Trying to dissect or figure out how prayer works is like using a magnifying glass to discern why a newborn is beautiful, or using a microscope to figure out the wonder of the Smoky Mountains in the fall. And yet so many times, this is our approach to God. Paul Miller, in his book, A Praying Life, which I would highly, highly, highly recommend you picking up, says this. If you turn God into an object, he has a way of disappearing. We do the same thing when a spouse or a friend treats us like an object. We pull back. If we are going to enter into the divine dance we call prayer, we have to surrender our desire to be in control, to always try and figure out how prayer works. Jesus' disciples saw him do a lot of things. They saw him fast. They saw him teach in the synagogues. They saw blindness go away. They saw people getting their hearing restored. They saw resurrections, people being brought back from the dead. They saw demon exorcism. They saw and ate and drank and worked with and followed God in the flesh. But think about this. In all of the Gospels, in all the things they witnessed, 
we don't have an account of the disciples asking Jesus to teach them how to do any of these things, except when they said, Lord, teach us how to pray. In America, we are the land of expediency. Slow is ineffective. To be slow is to be behind and apathetic and lazy. To be slow is to be unproductive. And ultimately, to be slow is to be wasteful. To be slow is to do something wildly alternative to our world of noise. And to be slow is to pray. And to pray is inter- to pray is to enter into the very presence of God himself. And there could be nothing better than entering into that presence. But like the handling of scripture we talked about a few weeks ago, so many of us have varying backgrounds when it comes to prayer. We have so many honest questions about it. Do I believe my little spirit vocalized to the God of the cosmos who created the world and sustains it actually makes a difference? Or am I just talking to the walls? Do I think it makes a difference in the world? Does my asking, my requesting actually move the hand of God? I mean, throughout the history of time, the history of people, Surely God is not interested in how I go about my job or how I care for my kids or how I honor my parents or how I engage in homework. Surely he only cares about things that actually matter, right? And not only do we have questions when it comes to prayer, we have reasons we don't pray. There's a hundred, but I'll give you five. The first is a spirit of isolation, We are growing less and less relational. Last year, pre-pandemic, NPR actually released a study with the Health Resources and Services Administration that said three out of five Americans experience profound loneliness. Again, this was pre-pandemic. In fact, people were calling this an epidemic of loneliness. And that is in the church, too. The second is a spirit of cynicism. We are just growing more and more cynical. The number one thing the enemy loves to do is corrupt. And one of the ways he's corrupting is by instilling cynicism in us. He may not be able to destroy your soul, but he will dull it all the way down. And we, as a culture at large, are growing increasingly critical. And that is in the church, too. The third is a culture of efficiency. Quieting your heart and stilling your spirit for 15 minutes in the morning or for five minutes in the car or for an hour in nature is too costly for us. It costs so much. It costs too much emotional space. It costs too much work time. We sacrifice too much in doing that. We simply don't have time to pray. The fourth is a culture of credit. We are just allergic to grace. We earn things in this society. We produce, we create results, we care about output. It is our prize to win and our bonus check and our incentives. And a culture of grace stands in stark contrast to a culture of credit. We don't earn brownie points with God. And we merely cannot accept the fact that God is here extending his love to us without anything we have done. We think we must earn it. And the last one is the most difficult, which is unanswered prayer. 
we don't pray because we have tried that and it just, quote, didn't work. And let's be honest, we all have them. We all have stories. We all have longings that have gone unmet. We have prayed deep things from the heart, things you have prayed and prayed and prayed hundreds of times where there seemed to be a different answer than you wanted, or worse, sometimes it just seemed God was so silent and didn't care. We all have these prayers. And part of what it means to step into the story of God is to believe in the grand narrative that he is writing and yet, at times, be very confused in how it plays out in the everyday. I provide no easy answers and no cliches and no trite sayings for unanswered prayer. And there are so many times where I have asked, God, why are you silent? But here's the thing. Prayer is not a cashier transaction where I stand at the counter and hand him my request and he gives me what I paid for. You make transactions with ATMs. Prayer is not a transaction. It is an actual relationship. What Sidney just read is an excerpt from the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if you're not familiar, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' manifesto. This is the greatest, most countercultural sermon ever preached. It was revolutionary for its time, and it is revolutionary for our time. And we won't break down the whole sermon, but the central overriding theme he continues to hit on throughout the entire teaching is motive. He takes aim at the heart, or the soul, as the ancients call it. He says this, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Now the pagans or the Gentiles would try and get their God's attention by negotiating with them, by almost bartering with them. I'll give you this if you give me that. And they would babble and they would rip their clothes and they would make a scene and they would do what they could to say to their God, hello, look at me. But look at the clear contrast here. Jesus says, do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. What a distinction. God, the loving father, meeting you, knowing you, desiring presence with you, not annoyed by you, not turned off by you, but rather knowing your needs before you ask them. Our relationship with God is not about us getting God's attention. It's about him getting ours. We are not in negotiations with him playing, let's make a deal. Rather, he is in pursuit of us, wooing us to his heart by his love. He doesn't desire loud attention. In fact, the opposite. It, it's in the closet, in, in the secret, in the everyday, in the mundane, in the ordinary, where no one knows and no one is keeping score. 
It's just a relationship between a dad and his kid. And then his instructions are pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. In a culture of fear and isolation, God invites us into intimacy. See, fear naturally repels us. We distance ourselves from God. And conversely, we distance ourselves from others. If you go back and read Genesis, the idea that Adam and Eve walked around without shame or guilt or fear before the fall is almost incomprehensible to us. We have never experienced a world where we do not have some level of shame or guilt or fear. And so typically, we approach God with these in mind, which usually means we don't approach him at all. But what's interesting about the start of this prayer is it combines two of the most challenging aspects to wrap our heads around as it relates to God. It is that he is both infinite and personal. He is both a tender father and a sovereign king. He is intimately close and infinitely wide. He is as high as the heavens are above the earth, meaning he far exceeds the glories of the galaxies, and he bends his knee and cradles his kids. Let's just call it like it is. Most of us don't love that about him. Paul Miller goes on to say, Majesty and humility are such an odd fit. This is one reason we struggle with prayer. We just don't think that God could be concerned with the puny details of our lives. We either believe he's too big or that we're not that important. No wonder Jesus told us to be like little children. Little kids are not daunted by the size of their parents. They come regardless. We don't like God too close, especially if God is a deity we cannot control. We have a primal fear of walking with God in the garden, naked, without clothing. We desperately want intimacy, but when it comes, we pull back, fearful of a God who is too personal and too pure. We are much more comfortable with God at a distance. We are much more comfortable with God at a distance. But God is not satisfied with us at a distance. You know, he is much more concerned with coming down to the low places, to the places of insecurity and brokenness, pain, poverty, desperation, confession of sin. That is where intimacy is found. Who wants to share their insecurities and brokenness and the raw material of their soul? We're just afraid of that. Which makes it a real good thing that God, though he became like us, is still different than us. He is unafraid to approach the dark places of our humanity. He doesn't shun that. Rather, he welcomes it. If we want to step into all that God has for us, then we get to accept the invitation to intimacy. And much of intimacy comes in what some writers have called the ministry of secrecy. And actually, much of the Sermon on the Mount is about that, this idea of secrecy. No one knows when you escape with God in the car for 15 minutes, when the podcast is off and the only sounds are traffic and heat. 
and no one knows about the walk to class as you are sensitive to the scripture that's been brought to your mind and how it's forming you. And no one knows about the meeting that you showed up for early where you sit in the workroom and bring your co-workers before God. It's the secret place. It is the place of intimacy. And what is so daunting about God is not that he is big, but that if you have chosen the path of repentance and you have longed to be forgiven, you are therefore adopted. You know, most of the time when I meditate on the reality of who God is, I am not always blown away by his pure grandiosity. I am more blown away that he desires intimacy. And that God is not a mere creator who is far off, but a father who actually enjoys conversation with his child. Because of the blood of Jesus, we are part of the bloodline of God. You are brought into the family photo. It is daunting because uh, because intimacy can be intimidating because all of us have probably experienced some type of relationship when intimacy led to danger and therefore intimacy was no longer safe or desired. And it is just the great challenge of our relationship with God. It is the question that is constantly in the back of our minds. God desires intimacy. But in his holiness, in his hallowedness, in his set-apartness, is he safe? Is he safe? Our greatest hurdle will be believing that he is. When we pray our Father, we are not adding on another name to the already long list of names that God has. Father is not another name for God. It is who God is to us. And we don't understand who God is if we do not first understand that God is our Father. And our Father longs and loves to be in the presence of his kids. The second line is this, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In a culture of control, God invites us to submit and act. God's will is such a loaded term in English, and there is not enough time in 2021 to begin to dissect all that those two words mean when put together. But I do want to make something clear. When we pray the Lord's Prayer... And when we ask for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done now as it is in his presence, we are making the claim that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. There is not meant to be teenagers gunned down on our streets. Violence does not exist in the kingdom coming. There is not meant to be conflict among people. Animosity is not in the kingdom coming. Sin does not exist in the kingdom coming. There is no pleasure in inequality, in sexual conquest, in abuse, in war, in death, in fits of rage, mental illness, or pride. Those do not exist in the kingdom coming. And see, we know God's will for the world in the sense that we know what God desires of us. We know he longs for us to become more like him in holiness and in neighborly love and in serving the poor and extending forgiveness. He longs for us to be in mutual relationship with one another and to have his word hidden in our hearts 
That is his will for our lives. So when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, we first need to acknowledge that God's will being done happens when we submit to God and begin to obey the Spirit of God where we live and where we work and where we play. Your kingdom come is not a throwaway line. It is the line. The kingdom of God has come in part in the person of Jesus, and we desire it to come in full with the renewal of all things, where darkness and death are thrown into the pit of hell, and where light and life and joy and peace, equity and intimacy and safety reign, because God is king. The prayer is a quiet, humble acknowledgement that God is king and we want his kingdom. To love God means to yearn for and pray for and work for the purposes of God. God's will for you is to embrace him as father. And we yearn for his name to be honored everywhere. And we long for his will and his justice and his peace to be done right here on earth as it is always done in his presence. And he goes on, says, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So in a culture of independence and self-interest, God invites us into dependence and humility. To not ask for things is to not live in the physical reality of our world. Meaning, we desire God to move in our world, our physical world. And this may feel awkward for many of us that have grown up in the church, but it is okay to ask God for things. In fact, Jesus said, you do not have because you do not ask. Now, there's a parable in Luke 18 of a persistent widow. And I won't read you the whole thing, but the parable tells a story of a widow who approaches a judge and was just pleading her case in front of him over and over again. And this judge was not a righteous judge. He was, in fact, an unrighteous, evil judge. But in the end, he actually gives her justice against the man who had wronged her. And the comparison is about the unrighteous judge who gives justice to the asking persistent widow to the righteous father who longs to give justice to his kids who ask. And the opening line of Luke 18 is, And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. It is not God's willingness to give that is in question. It is our unwillingness to ask. Jesus, the Son of God, asks. Most of us, I mean, hopefully all of us would say that we are not above that. And yet so many times we stay away from engaging God in personal needs for personal things. And part of it is because we think that's not spiritual. We have adopted the Enlightenment perspective. Now, if you're unfamiliar, during the uh, 18th century, leading thinkers decided that they didn't need God anymore. Thinkers like Immanuel Kant divided the world into two circles, facts and feelings. Facts were true for all, and feelings, feelings were true for me. And the facts circle was filled with things like computers and physics and textbooks and astronomy and history. 
And the feelings circle was filled with things like beauty and love and art and novels and religion. And this view has come to be known as secularism. It is, and the idea is that when you lump God in together with feelings and subjective opinion, then God gets marginalized and prayer feels very odd. And you can probably attest to that. I mean, people would look at you funny if you stopped on the side of the street to pray, or you just prayed for someone on the side of the road. That doesn't make it right or wrong, but just the observation of its oddity marks a cultural moment for us. So praying for something like a parking space at a crowded restaurant or for you to make it to the next week's paycheck or for that grade to come back that you worked really hard to study on, those are not wrong things to pray for, but in an increasingly secular society, it feels so weird. Why would God be concerned about those needs? Why would God be concerned about that? Well, one of the reasons is because we believe that God is intimately involved in our lives, which means he is intimately involved with us. So yes, he does care about the plight of the Uyghur people who are being abused and trafficked across Asia. And he does care about the plight of the global poor. And he does care about the millions of orphans across the world. And he does care about people being displaced in society. It's not that he doesn't care about those large-scale things. He does. Greatly, I believe. But our struggle to believe that God cares about the personal things in our life does not stem from the fact that we think God is too big for those needs, but that our belief in God is too small. Let's not be afraid to engage God in our physical world. It is his world anyway. When we walk outside and we feel the sun and when we play sports or go for a jog or type on our computer, we are in complete unity of thinking and feeling physical and spiritual, the public and the personal. It is all his. So if one of the reasons we don't engage God with our tangible world is because we don't think it's spiritual enough or our belief in God is not big enough, the other reason is because we have grown numb to some of our needs. Folks, we are the richest nation in the history of the world with more stuff than we know what to do with, and therefore we are just numb to our own limitations, even our physical ones. And one of the sad consequences of that is that we are not in any sort of rhythm in conversing with God about what we need, both physically and spiritually. We typically don't engage God in our everyday needs. But just think about the verses in Scripture that go against that grain. 1 John 5.14 says, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Mark 11.24 says, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Philippians 4.6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then John 14, 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. 
Do you think your father just says when you ask him for silly or playful or childlike things that he just has this sort of annoyed look on his face? Like, don't bother me with that right now. I have, I have too many other things on my plate. I am not concerned with that. Do you believe that is God's heart and disposition toward you? By the way, Jesus' instructions about how to enter the kingdom was to become like a child. And think about how much children ask. And then think about Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh, praying in the garden, Father, if it is your will, remove this cup from me. And most of us focus on the part that says, not my will, but yours be done. And that is a great posture of the heart and one that we should emulate and long to have. But let's not overlook the honesty of Jesus. He is pleading with the Father if there is any other way. Meaning, is there any other way besides being brutally and physically mutilated and publicly executed for political theater? Is there any other way than that? And then as he is hanging in the sky with real nails through his real hands and his real breath is getting shorter and shorter because he cannot hold himself up long enough. He cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Brutal, gut-riching honesty. In the Lord's Prayer, there is a real ask, give us this day our daily bread. Now, this could be interpreted the very literal bread of Jesus because he calls himself the bread of life, and that would be a fine interpretation. It would also be a fine interpretation of a physical needs of our day. Give us this day our daily bread, a physical component to our prayers. And then he says, and forgive us our debts. Not only is there a physical ask, but there is a relational ask. Forgiveness is not merely about right standing with God, but right relationship with him, reunified with him. And the same is true of others. Forgiveness is not about someone standing in front of you that has wronged you and you playing it off like everything's cool and still in your spirit holding something over their head. There is no forgiveness in that. Forgiveness is the roadmap for relationships to flourish. It is why we can experience God as Father, and it's why some of the richest relationships come from some of the most powerful words. I forgive you. We pray that for ourselves and we pray that for others. Forgive us as we forgive. And lastly, it says this, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In a culture of moral degradation, God is inviting us into holy formation. Now, this can actually be confusing because on one hand, we know that God does not lead people to temptation but rather our own hearts through believing the lies of the evil one are what lead us into sin. So why would Jesus be praying this to God? Well, think of it less like God dangling some temptation in front of you to see if you could sort of withstand the test and more of a cry from a child to a father, save us from this time of trial. And there are moments where we do experience times of testing, and that testing will form us one way or another. But the focus here is more about the coming age. In in theological terms, it is called the 
eschatological time, the end times. Wesley Hill wrote a book on the Lord's Prayer, and he says, We will be saved from the time of ultimate trial, sheltered from it, and spared from ever experiencing its true horrors, because there is one who has already experienced those horrors in our place. Because Jesus was not saved from temptation, we are. The prayer of Jesus, the Lord's prayer, is about becoming like him. And we must take our walk with Jesus, which is both personal and relational, seriously. We must take our social ethic seriously. And in that seriousness, we pray. We develop an inner life where the Spirit of God is just constantly hovering over ours. We are prompted in moments of quiet to return to Him. We are reminded in moments of impatience how He is patient with us. We are reminded in moments of unjust rage of His gentle disposition toward us. And we are reminded in moments of lust that another person is an image bearer of God, not an object of our imagination, and we begin slowly, intentionally, over time to cultivate a private life with God that is played out publicly with others. We just cannot separate the two. So our prayer becomes, Lord, protect me from myself. Protect me from the one who wants me to spiral and deliver me in moments of private and relational and corporate evil. Our moral integrity matters. It matters to God our Father. It matters to your brothers and sisters in this room. And it matters as a testimony of public witness that we are God's people. And notice there is no dismissing of our individual needs, but this prayer is actually a communal one. Our Father, give us our daily bread and forgive us our debts and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The Christian life is both personal and communal. It is in secret and it is in public. It is in the quiet and in fellowship. It is at 3 a.m. when you can't fall asleep and at noon around the lunch table. You know, there are about 40 different times in the Gospels where Jesus is recorded praying. More than any other type of discipline, more than any other spiritual practice, he prays. He he escapes to the quiet place, to the desert. In Greek, the word is eremos, and he gets alone and he prays. So why do you think he prayed so much? Genuinely think about that. The Son of God, and yet completely human like you and I, why do you think Jesus prayed so much? It's because Jesus believed the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God, which means that prayer is primarily about love. And love requires time and intentionality and effort. And the outcome is authentic genuine, deep relationship. Now, I know a handful of you are not married, but I want to put this out there because it feels like the most fitting metaphor, and I think you can do this with friendship as well. But if I knew facts about Sarah, 
and I knew her history, and I knew her family's lineage, and I knew about what she liked to eat and didn't like, and I was legally wed to her as her husband, and I could tell you so many great and wonderful things about her, but I did not just ever sit across the table and enjoy a meal with her. If I did not go on regular retreats with her, if I did not walk the neighborhood with her, if I did not mind and actually enjoy just being in the same room with her, maybe without even speaking, then what kind of relationship is that? I mean, sure, we're married by law, but it's a marriage void of love. It's a marriage full of facts and empty of beauty. It's a marriage without mystery and without wonder. It's a marriage by legal standards alone, but it doesn't feel like marriage. And I just wonder if that's how we treat the Lord in prayer. Some of us know a lot about God. Some of you can do circles around people when it comes to doctrine and apologetics. But the doctrines of God without the lived experience in God leads to an inevitable outcome of nominal Christianity. It is knowledge without power. It is facts without relationship. It is intellect without intimacy. And the outcome of a life of loving relationship is loving relationship. And the method to loving relationship with God is prayer. It is a dialogue between you and God because love is a relationship between you and God. I read this Neil Cole quote a few weeks ago, and I've read it every day since, and it has hit me between the eyes. It says this, As I look back on my life, I can say without hesitation that the most significant breakthroughs, whether in personal growth or leadership of others, were always times I spent in prayer. Listen carefully. I am not saying that the breakthroughs came about because of prayer. I'm saying that praying was the breakthrough. I'm not saying that the breakthroughs came about because of prayer. I am saying that praying was the breakthrough. We want to be a church that prays because in prayer we experience the goodness and greatness of God. You know, we started this church with a a missional impulse, a missional default. We want to be a church that is in the community, for the community, reflecting the community, loving the community. But something I've heard a pastor in New York City say that I think is somewhat profound. He says, whenever you get the presence in the church, you get the kingdom in the city. Whenever you get the presence in the church, you get the kingdom in the city. And prayer is a way to invite the presence of God into the church. And we are the church, the people of God, longing for the presence of God to be known through the word of God, by the spirit of God, for the glory of God, and the good of the image bearers of God in our neighborhood, so that the kingdom of God may come soon. There was a day where Jesus prayed. A terrible, awful day where Jesus prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. And the prayer of Jesus, the Son of God, was rejected. His prayer was rejected 
so that our prayers would be accepted. He was turned away and the cup of righteous wrath was spilled on Jesus so that we might experience the cup of blessing where we now with no pretense and no fear and no shame can come boldly and confidently to the throne of grace, receiving mercy and finding joy and slowing down and being embraced by the Father. If you have a life of prayer, a heart that longs to be in the presence of God, you will lose something, namely control and independence. But what you gain is friendship with God, a quiet heart, evil getting rolled back, and beauty making its way in. Peace begins to be your overriding posture, and you begin to settle down and settle in to a life in God. You begin to actually pray for your neighbors on their behalf, and you begin to intercede for the family of God. I have loved seeing a group me become a highway of prayer. In prayer, you lose your kingdom and you gain his. In Paul Miller's words, you move from being an independent player to a dependent lover. You move from being an orphan to a child. If we are going to embrace our identities as children of God, then we accept the invitation to a lifelong plunge ahead of us. And that is learning what it means to pray. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.